right, good morning, Hallows Church. It's good to see you. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. Uh, when we first started talking to King's Schools about the possibility of using Shermer Auditorium, they said there's this one week each year that may be a problem, and, and here we are. Uh, so thank you for your grace and your flexibility in making this space work uh, today, and thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're not there already, head over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. That's uh, the passage my wife Carol read just a moment ago. Philippians 1, 18 to 26. Now, last week, Pastor Andrew took us through a passage where we found Paul making uh, a pretty startling statement in the midst of some pretty severe circumstances. Paul was in a very demeaning and demoralizing uh, and dehumanizing situation in prison. His work of planting churches and advancing the gospel appeared to be about to be snuffed out altogether as he faced trial and possible execution in Rome. And the Philippians, they were growing discouraged and disheartened about Paul and about his predicament. They were surely wondering why God was not taking action to get Paul out of this situation that was threatening his ministry and that was threatening his life. And yet Paul said last week in verse 12, he said, I want you to know that despite how things look, despite how things seem, Despite how things may feel to you, he said, what is going on with me right now is really serving to advance God's plans and God's purposes. You see, Paul had this unshakable assurance that God was up to something significant even in the midst of his imprisonment in Rome. Now, most of us would have been asking, just like the Philippians uh, were asking, why God? Why this? Why now? But Paul was not asking that at all. In fact, we find Paul in the midst of this turmoil in his life, seeing and sensing the ways that God was at work in him and, and through him and around him. And this week, Paul is going to continue this same stream of thought here. And as he does, we're going to be treated to a pretty remarkable passage. It's a passage in which the Apostle Paul lays his heart bare and really reveals to us the motives of his life. And at the very same time, he's going to reveal to us his secret. He's going to show us his approach to life as a follower of Jesus that enabled him to face any and every circumstance that came his way without being crushed by them. And interestingly, not only is Paul not crushed by his circumstances, regardless of what they were, his approach to life somehow allowed him to maintain a certain buoyancy, a certain stability, and a certain joy that no human situation and no human struggle could take from him. And we need to remember here, Paul was sitting in prison facing the prospect of losing everything that he had been working for the past 20 plus years. And Paul had accomplished much over that period. This guy was one of the greatest leaders in human history. Paul was the main architect of the early Christian church, and God used him in incredible ways. Paul could go into any major metropolitan city in the Greco-Roman world, and he could set up shop there. He had engaged people around him. He'd publicly debate people about their worldviews. He'd share the gospel with them. And after a while, there would be so many new believers that he had started a church in that city. And then he'd go to a new city, and he'd do that very same thing again. And he did that very thing again and again across the entire Mediterranean region. But now, as Paul sits in this prison cell, all that he had worked so hard for was under threat. In fact, his life, very life was under threat too. And the Philippians were wondering what this meant for them. 
and what this meant for their church and what it meant for every church that followed Jesus. And yet Paul, he was, he was not despairing over his situation. He was not discouraged over his circumstances. Instead, we find Paul overcoming his circumstances in some pretty, some pretty fascinating ways. Paul says to the Philippians in this passage, it does not matter to me whether I live or whether I die. He says it's a small thing. I might die tomorrow or I might live another 20 years. It does not matter to me. It is not actually affecting my life. Because Paul says, that which I am living for, that which makes my life worth living, is not threatened by anything at all that's going on around me. And as we move through this passage today, I'd like to ask you to keep a a certain question in mind, and that is, what are you living for today? And what if it was taken from you tomorrow? Would you stand or would you fall? We don't usually consider those kinds of questions until something terrible happens in our lives. And something terrible was happening with Paul here, and we get to see how he, how he answers that question. And if you and I can see how Paul has triumphed in the midst of his struggles and in the midst of his suffering, we'll see how we can do the very same as followers of Jesus living in this very fallen world. Paul is going to teach us in this passage that it's not the circumstances of your life that will determine whether you whether you stand or fall in this world. It's not whether things go well for you or things go poorly for you. Rather, it's the way that you define your life and it's what you're living for most that'll determine whether you stand or fall when life comes at you and and knocks you down. And friends, you and I know that life will come at you at times in, in overwhelming ways. This life will eventually take from you many of the things that you hold dear to you. And so the question is not if you will respond when terrible things happen. The question is how you will respond. And so there's nothing more practical for us today than what the Apostle Paul has to say to us in this passage. Paul is going to show us here a few things for how you and I can face anything and everything that comes our way in life without fear, without losing our footing, and without losing our joy. It's not easy, that's to be sure, but it is possible as we press into what Paul is saying here and as we, as we take God at his word. And the first thing the Apostle Paul is going to show us here is that, is that as followers of Jesus, we truly have a unique perspective in our suffering and about our suffering. In verse 19, Paul says, essentially, all of this, all, all that's happening to me, everything that's happen, hap, happening to me right now, is turning out for my deliverance, he says. Now that word deliverance normally gives the idea of a physical escape of some sort, of being released or liberated from a a bad situation. And so when you and I read verse 19 and we see that word deliverance, it may seem at first glance like Paul is saying, I'm quite sure I'm going to get out of prison. I'm quite sure I'll be leaving here soon. I'm going to survive this. But that's not what Paul is saying in verse 19. Most scholars and commentators agree that Paul is not talking here about getting out of prison. Because as we read this passage carefully in its proper context, the deliverance that Paul is talking about does not seem to depend on whether he lives or whether he dies. Paul speaks of his being delivered even while he also talks about losing his life. Now this begins to make a bit more sense when we consider that this word in verse 19 that's translated as deliverance in your ESV translation 
The Greek word there is actually the word salvation. Soteria is the Greek word. And virtually everywhere else in the New Testament, this Greek word is translated as, as salvation. But it's somewhat confusing in the context of this particular passage here, and, and so some translators put it as deliverance. But many others hold to the more literal translation of salvation because that's what the word means, and that's how it's translated virtually everywhere else. And you can perhaps see why some of the translators might have trouble with this. It can seem a bit confusing. It raises the question, okay, well, if that's the word salvation there, then, then what is Paul getting at? Is he saying that he's not yet saved? Is he saying that he needs to go through these things in order to be saved? Now, we know from other parts of the Bible, many other parts of the Bible, that that's not what Paul is saying here. Our salvation and our security in Christ is kept and guarded by God himself, and so it's not dependent upon anything that we do other than putting our faith and our trust in the gospel. But you see the word salvation in the New Testament. It's used in different tenses. Sometimes the Bible tells us that as Christians, we've been, we've been saved from the penalty of sin, past tense, but other times, the Bible tells us that as Christians, we're being saved from the power and from the effects of sin in the present tense. We've been saved on the one hand, and we're being saved in the, on the other hand. And it's the latter that Paul is primarily talking about in verse 19 here when he says that all the struggles that he's going through in his life is, is resulting in his salvation. And very interestingly, Paul seems to be saying here, not so much that I'm being saved in spite of these bad things that are happening to me. Rather, Paul seems to be saying that I'm being saved because of these bad things that are, that are happening to me. Paul knows that the hard things that he's going through in his life, they're changing him. They're shaping him. They're refining him. And they're saving him in this progressive sort of way. In fact, later in verse 21, which we'll hit next week, Paul says in a pretty startling way that many of the trials and struggles in our lives are granted to us or gifted to us, in a sense, by God himself. Now, you may hear something like that and you may bristle, you may push back a bit. It doesn't jive so well with our modern sensibilities. We mostly see suffering as a problem to be solved as quickly as possible, not as some sort of peculiar providence of God for our own benefit and for our own growth. But Paul is quite clear here and elsewhere on this point. Jesus is quite clear on this point as well. In fact, the entire New Testament is quite clear that trials and suffering will characterize the Christian journey at some point and at some level. And you may remember last week, Paul told us that God is big enough to use even the most unlikely of circumstances to advance his gospel in this world. And here we are this week getting the further sense that, that not only is God big enough to be bringing about his plans and purposes in the world around us out of what seem like dire and desperate circumstances, but he's also big enough to be bringing, out, bringing about his plans and purposes in our hearts as well out of those same circumstances by using them to change us, to challenge us for our good and for our growth. This is one of the reasons, I think, why Paul says that all of these things he's going through are turning out for his deliverance, for his salvation, because all that he's going through is, is making him who he needs to be and who he wants to be. 
In Romans chapter 5, Paul touches on this same idea when he says that the struggles and suffering in our lives, they produce endurance within us. And that endurance, it, it produces character within us. And that, and that character, it produces hope within us. Our circumstances change us, don't they? Often for the better if we can approach them rightly. The Apostle Peter paints a very similar picture in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he compares our faith with gold that must be tested by fire. And it's an interesting picture that Peter paints there because on the one hand, when you apply intense heat to gold, it, it drives out impurities and it, and it purifies the gold. But get this, at the very same time, the same heat of the refining fire is actually also strengthening and, and beautifying the gold. The gold begins to shine more and more brightly as a result of being subjected to the refining fire. It becomes more radiant. It becomes more brilliant. And both Paul and Peter, I think, would say the same can be true with us as we approach life's struggles and suffering in the right way and with the right perspective. God uses our lives and our circumstances. He uses our trials and our uh, temptations to refine us, to, to stretch us, to, to strengthen us, and to build character within us. And this may be a tough concept for some, but it is entirely biblical. And I think at some level, the reason, the reason God works in these types of ways is because He's a loving and personal Father. As a parent... As a parent, I know at times the best course of action with my kids has not necessarily been to shield or shelter or pamper them as they move uh, through life, but rather to prepare them, to, to help them to grow, and to help them to develop character and integrity and, and wisdom and things like these. And the truth is, sometimes that has involved me lovingly allowing my kids to be exposed to certain challenges. Sometimes that has involved me as their as their father who loves them, allowing them to stumble and falter and to figure things out for themselves. Quite often that has involved me guiding them through obstacles and around obstacles and over obstacles rather than removing those obstacles for them. Still other times it has even involved me as their father who truly wants what's best for them, allowing their circumstances even to break them down at some level so that they could be built up even stronger and wiser than before. Friends, if you look honestly at your life, I'm quite certain you will be able to see God at times using the very circumstances that seem to be trying to crush you and destroy you to accomplish in you and through your circumstances something you did not expect and at times something altogether bright and brilliant and strong. And for Paul, that's one of the keys to his approach to life, and that is always taking hold of this unique perspective when it comes to his struggles and his suffering. When Paul comes into a situation, he does not expect to see the whole picture. He may be looking for a glimpse of what God is up to. He may want to see around uh, that next corner, but whether he gets that glimpse or not, he always knows there's a bigger picture at play with his God that he cannot fully see or understand. There's a bigger story being told than the one that his circumstances 
and his flesh may be trying to tell him. And so if you and I go into the difficulties of life with that type of perspective, knowing that we cannot see the whole picture, but trusting that our God is good and, and trusting that our God is at work, in a sense, we're on top. We're, we're on top of things. Life can't knock us down in quite the same way. If you and I believe that God works in these sorts of ways, instead of allowing our circumstances to get the better of us, we can instead begin to ask and wonder, how are you going to flip the script this time, Lord? How are you going to use this? What, what are you up to? So Paul, he shows us something here about the unique perspective that we need to take hold of, I think, in the midst of our struggles and our suffering, a perspective that helps us keep our bearings, helps us keep our confidence and our joy. But he's also going to show us that as followers of Jesus, we have a purpose in this life that, that cannot be touched or taken. We have an untouchable purpose in this life. Paul tells us in verse 21 what his life is all about, doesn't he? He tells us what he's living for above all else. He's saying, this is my bottom line. This is the most important thing to me. If I have this, then, then I have what I need. Paul is giving us here his definition of life and his purpose and his priority in life. And he's telling the Philippians, and he's telling us, if you have a proper definition of your life, you'll be able to face anything. If you don't have a proper definition of your life, you won't. Because the truth is, everybody defines their lives in one way or another, whether they're conscious of it or not. Everybody is living for something. Everybody is looking to something to make their lives worth living and to give them meaning and purpose. Most of us choose things like family or friends. We choose things like a career or a cause. We choose things like status or success. We choose things like romance or physical attractiveness. And we say that for me, for me to live is that. That's my bottom line. That's the point and purpose of my life. And we all do it at some level, don't we? And as Christians, we often do it by saying something like, uh, yes, Jesus is important for me, sure, to live is Christ, plus my work, plus my leisure time, plus my wealth accumulation, plus my relationships, plus this, that, or the other. And these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, of course. But all too often, these plus factors really become our primary passions. They get out of order as we place more value and importance on them than they can ultimately bear. And if we're not careful, those same things, those plus factors, they become the, the functional saviors of our lives. They become the things that we're truly living for, while Jesus becomes more and more of an accessory or a supplement to the things that we truly value most, which often is not him. And Paul is saying that's a dangerous way to go about living. You see, when the circumstances of your life threaten those things that you're living for most of all, you'll come undone, you'll collapse, you'll lose all hope, you'll lose all joy because you've been stripped of the very thing that matters most of all to you. If your life is collapsing because your career is collapsing, it's because your career is your life. And the problem is less the circumstances of your life than it is the definition of your life and what you're, what you're truly living for. 
If your life is collapsing, when your relationships are collapsing, it's because your relationships are your life. And your problem is not your circumstances, but your definition of life and what you're living for above all else. I think Paul would say that the fundamental problem with most of us is that we're ultimately living for things that can be taken from us. We're living for things that are finite and fleeting, and because of that, we end up, in one way or another, living in fear of those things being taken away from us. And those things will be taken away from us given enough time. Your health will be taken from you. Your family will be taken from you. Your career will be taken from you in one way or another, whether in life or by death. And if you're not careful in how you're defining your life and what you're living for, you can very easily end up living in fear of of both life and death. But when you make Jesus the point and the purpose and, and the center of your life, then nothing anyone does to you or says about you or takes from you in your life can, can touch what matters most and what makes your life worth living. And that's why Paul could endure any situation. That's why you and I can face any situation if we're approaching this rightly. Everything in the, else in this world can and will be taken from you, but he can't and he won't. He will never leave you or forsake you. In Jesus, we have an untouchable purpose and point to our lives that that frees us to live and to love with boldness and with freedom rather than with fear. But not only that, not only does the gospel give us an untouchable purpose to our lives, it also gives us unimaginable promise in our death. This is fascinating stuff here from the Apostle Paul. We see here Paul, that Paul's, Paul's greatest hope and joy in this life, it comes not in spite of death, it actually comes because of death. Verse 21, to live is Christ, he says, and he says to die is, is gain. Paul says it makes no difference to me if I live or die. In fact, he says my preference would be to depart, to die because of what that means to me. And for me, he says, if this was just about me, I'd rather depart, I'd rather go. He says in verse 23, my desire is to depart because that means I'll be with Jesus and that is far better than anything and everything this life has to offer. But get this, in saying this, Paul clearly does not have some strange sort of death wish here. Because if you keep reading, you see that just as Christ did for us, putting us before himself, Paul puts the interests of others ahead of his own deepest desires. He sets aside his own desire to depart because in verses 23 and 24, he says he knows it'll be better for the Philippians if he stays. He knows that their progress and their joy in the faith would benefit most by him staying rather than departing. He's putting the needs of others ahead ahead of of what he wanted most of all. So to to depart is better. To die is gain. I'd like to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you trust that? Is your life reflecting that in any meaningful way? If only we believe that more deeply, how our lives would be changed. How differently would we live our lives today if we believed what Paul was saying here in the ways that Paul believed it? 
And I'm not saying this is easy. Paul, I don't think, is saying this is easy either, but it is possible. It's clearly possible to see death as gain and to to face it without fear, just as Paul is doing here in this passage. But for most people in our society and in our culture, death is most certainly not seen in this way. Death is a terrifying thing to be avoided and resisted at all costs. We live in a culture that thinks of physical death with such dread that society's highest goal is the postponement of death as as long as possible. And it does make some sense, uh, doesn't it? Especially if your worldview does not include God, if it does not include an afterlife. If your worldview tells you that this is all we have here in this life, then you have good reason to, to fear death and to live in avoidance or in denial of it. Listen to what Woody Allen said in an interview from a few years back about his own uh, grappling with his mortality and with his, per- his own perception of the finality of death. He says this, he says, there's no advantage to aging. You don't get wiser, you don't get more mellow, and you don't see life in a more glowing way. You have to fight your body decaying and you have less options. The only thing you can do is what you did when you were 20, which is to distract yourself because you're always walking with an abyss right under your feet. He says, getting involved in a movie occupies all of my anxiety. If I wasn't concentrated on distractions, I'd be thinking of larger issues, and those are not resolvable. He says, you are checkmated whichever way you go. That's quite a contrast, isn't it, from the Apostle Paul, who says, I'm I'm looking forward to departing because that is my ultimate gain, toward which my entire life is and has been moving. But what about Christians today in our culture? Shouldn't professing Christians, in light of the things that we've been talking about, be in the best position to to live differently, to live life boldly and buoyantly in light of the, the biblical teaching on death? Well, you might think so, but the truth is, uh, not so much. Secular philosopher Simon Critchley gets at this in his 2013 book that's entitled The Book of Dead Philosophers. He says this, he says, Christianity in the hands of a Paul, an Augustine, or a Luther is a way of becoming reconciled to the brevity of life and giving up the desire for wealth, worldly goods, and temporal power. But many Christians today, he says, are, are actually leading desperate, atheistic lives bounded by a desire for longevity and a sheer terror of death. While a vast majority of Americans believe in God and they believe in heaven, they believe in an afterlife, their religious beliefs seem to bring them very little support, very little solace in the face of their own deaths or the deaths of those around them. In fact, it seems what many today really believe in and really put their trust and hope in are doctors and drugs and technology that might increase their comfort and their contentedness and their longevity in this life. But Paul says we need to disrupt and dismantle these false fears and these false beliefs about death because they will inevitably cripple us in life. Unlike most of us, Paul feared neither death nor life because his definition of life and his expectations of the future were fueled and energized by, by this twofold approach to living that we see in verse 21, knowing that to live is Christ, that he's our point and our purpose, 
and trusting that to die was his ultimate gain. As Paul tells us in verse 23, to depart is to be with Christ. That is what death does. It takes us into more intimacy with Christ, an intimacy that in this life we experience only in ever so partial and uh, imperfect sense. In death, for the Christian, all of the uncertainties and dangers lie behind, while all of the certainties and the safeties lie ahead of us. And that's why Paul can sit there in that prison saying, it does not matter to me if I live or if I die, because for Paul, if he is executed, he will have gained Christ fully and finally. Now, the Bible leaves much undescribed about life after death, but it does give us hints and whispers and glimpses of what we can expect. And it also tells us the perspective by which we can view our own present lives in relation to what is to come. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, that all of the struggles and challenges that we face in this life are nothing more than a light and momentary affliction that is, that is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, in talking about our futures, he says that every tear will be wiped away by God himself, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have an inheritance that awaits us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Thomas Brooks, an English and Puritan pastor and author, describes death as the great deliverer. He says, remember this, death does in a moment what no graces, no duties, nor any ordinances could do for a man in all of his lifetime. Death frees a person from those diseases, corruptions, and temptations that nothing in life could ever do. Every prayer then, when we die, shall have its answer. All hungering and thirsting shall be filled and satisfied Every sigh, groan, and tear that has fallen from the Christian's eyes shall then be recompensed or repaid. That, he says, is not death at all, but life, which joins the dying man to Christ. Brooks is saying that if we're thinking rightly, if we're trusting God at his word, death not only ceases to be something to be feared, death not only ceases to be our conqueror, Death actually becomes God's meek and submissive helper. Death delivers us out of the bondage of this human condition into unimaginable beauty and vibrancy and fullness of life. And friends, if that's true, then what in the world are we afraid of? Think about this. All of the most profound experiences in this life, whether we're talking about experiences of joy or, or beauty, whether we're talking about experiences of pleasure or peace, whether we're talking about love or, or laughter, every last one of these most powerful and profound experiences in our lives will be found to be nothing more than the faintest hints 
and whispers of what is to come for us when we depart. Paul knew that. Paul trusted that. And he lived his life in in light of that. And look at what this meant for Paul's life. This guy could not be shut down. This guy utterly perplexed and, and frustrated those around him. They would put him in prison, and what would he do? He'd convert the guards. He'd sing songs about Jesus. And he'd write books of the Bible. They'd let him go, and what would he do? He'd preach the gospel boldly, and he would plant churches prolifically. They'd try to kill him, and what would he do? He was looking forward to it. And this is no anomaly. This is a life available to us as we take hold of Paul's definition of life, that is to to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, you may say that's all good and well, but how does this work? How does this actually come about? How do we see and experience these truths in a way that changes us and empowers us to approach life more like Paul? Because the truth is, we can sit here and say, okay, the Bible says that, I, I understand that, yes, I believe that. And then we go about living our lives for all the wrong things and in all the wrong ways. But Paul cues us in here to something truly incredible, I think, and truly practical for us as well. He's going to tell us, and he's, he's going to tell us how you and I, how we get after this together, how we bring this alive in our hearts and in our minds and, and apply it to our lives in, in meaningful ways. So our fourth and final point here is Paul showing us that we have, we have unparalleled power in prayer. Now, we didn't touch on this earlier because I wanted to touch on it now as we wrap things up, but, but did you notice in verse 19, Paul tells us why he was confident that everything would uh, turn out for his good and for his growth and for his salvation. He tells us how he could have this unique perspective in the midst of his suffering. He tells us how he was able to live out his life for Jesus and for the gospel in profound and productive ways. He says in verse 19, what makes all this possible, get this, he says, what makes this possible is the the prayers of God's people and the power of God's Spirit. He says it's through the prayers of God's people and the power of God's Spirit that he's able to live this way with courage and with A purpose facing both life and death in ways that honor and magnify Jesus. Paul is saying something fascinating here. Most commentators seem to agree that what Paul is saying here is that the presence and fullness of the the Holy Spirit in Paul's life was supplied to Paul by God through the prayers of the Philippian Christians. The grammar here suggests the closest kind of relationship between the prayers of the Philippians and the supply of fresh fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit to empower Paul's life. In fact, we learn a great deal here about Paul's own spiritual life and about his understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in his life and in his ministry. And Paul clearly does not see the Christian life as something that takes place in isolation from other Christians. Paul was far away in Rome. He was stuck in prison. He was headed for trial. But the Philippians were nevertheless inextricably bound to, together with Paul in prayer by the Holy Spirit. Paul is reminding us here, I think, as a, as a family of faith known as the, the Hallows Church, that we are interconnected by the Spirit in ways that, 
that we need to be aware of, that we need to be taking advantage of. Paul is saying that his perseverance, his courage, his, his very sanctification did not take place automatically, but rather they took place and were made possible through the prayers of the Philippians and through God's gracious supply of the Holy Spirit. We tend to spend much of the time that we devote to prayer asking God to to make our lives more pleasant and comfortable. We ask God to remove ourselves and our families and our friends from the hardships that they may be facing. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. After all, the Bible encourages us to ask and to seek, to knock, to bring all our requests before our loving Heavenly Father. But I think Paul would say as well that we have a certain obligation to one another that we should not lose sight of. We have an obligation to put one another's spiritual health, spiritual growth at the very forefront of our, of our prayers and to take that responsibility seriously. So friends, let's together make this our responsibility to one another. Let's make this something we can depend upon from one another. The truth is we need each other desperately in this way. We see that clearly in this passage. My hope is that you'll commit with me today to love and to serve one another in this sort of way by praying for one another, by, by praying for the spiritual vitality and, and growth and well-being of our church family. Let's pray for one another that we would be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we might live more for Christ, so that we might increasingly see dying as a gain, and so that in doing so we might honor Christ, whether in life or by death, as we see and savor Him as our ultimate profit and gain. It is only by the Holy Spirit that these things can even happen. It's not our own doing. It's only by the Spirit that the truth of God's Word is brought alive, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And as it is, we begin to be changed more and more by by who this Jesus is and and by what He did. You know, Paul's, Paul's definition of life and his approach to life, when he says, for me to live is Christ, in some ways, it's a very interesting sort of mirror image of of how Jesus approached life on this earth. After all, when Jesus went to the cross, friends, lay your heart on this this, this this morning, if you would. When Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, creator and sustainer of all things, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, do you know what he was saying? Jesus was saying that for me to live is you. For me to live is you, Cody. For me to live is you, Bo. For me to live is you, Richard. For me to live is you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us it was the joy, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And that joy, that joy was it was you and I. It was our salvation. He came to earth to live for us and to die for us so that we could come home. As we see that, as we savor that after a while, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes us in meaningful ways. 
because you and I, in return, we get to see all that he did and how he did it, and we get to say back to him, Jesus, my brother, my friend, my shepherd, my king, my pastor, my prince, and my savior, if for you to live is me, then for me to live is you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this important reminder that we truly have nothing to fear. God, would you bring these truths alive within us by your Holy Spirit? Would you impress upon our hearts and our minds increasingly that we have a point and a purpose in this life in Jesus that cannot be touched or taken by anyone or anything? Thank you, Father, that we have a future that is secure and waiting, a future that is more than we could ever think or ask or imagine. We pray that your spirit and your grace would abound in our lives, that we might live more boldly and love more boldly in the world that is in light of these truths for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.